my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. One of the most common things I'm asked about when I meet someone is crypto. And let me tell you, people are getting involved with crypto so many different ways. There's a new way people are doing it that has a lot of risk involved. I want to make sure you are aware. And later in the podcast, speaking of money, something may likely make your wallet almost obsolete. I'll tell you the good and bad about everything in our lives being stored on our phones, including even driver's licenses. So I want to talk to you for a minute about crypto. Uh, crypto is something that is not quite ready for prime time. There is a place for digital money in the world economy, and we're just in the early pioneering days. And you know what they say about pioneers? Pioneers got slaughtered so settlers can get rich. So in the pioneering phase, there have been people who actually have gotten rich on crypto, and they are the lucky ones. And I want to tell you, crypto is taking all different shapes and forms right now. Something that came on my radar last month is crypto being used as a way for you to borrow money. That's right. There are now uh, pseudo-fintech, financial institution kind of things that you can take your crypto and treat it kind of like what margin is for stocks, where you can borrow against the then current value of whatever crypto you put up, if it's one recognized by the marketplace that will lend you money against it, and they'll, they may allow you to borrow a third of the value of your crypto or as much as potentially half of the value of your crypto in a loan at fairly reasonable terms, no credit check, nothing like that, because the loan is secured by the crypto. And it's potentially a way that someone who doesn't have the greatest credit history could borrow money on more favorable terms. The thing you do need to know is that if the value of the crypto you have that you pledged basically is collateral against a loan, if the value of the crypto suddenly takes a big dive, then you may be subject to a call on the loan. What that means for people who are familiar with margin is that if you pledge stock in order to borrow money and the stock then declines in value, you then immediately have to pay back the loan or they sell through your position in the stock. Same kind of thing that happened to you with crypto when there's a decline in the marketplace. Now, there's a flip side to this, and that is people are being offered by various, they're almost like exchanges, kind of like fintechs, but they market themselves as something like a pseudo bank where people will pay you interest 
on your money if you uh, essentially lend money to them by depositing your crypto with them. And the interest rates they're paying are much higher than you can earn in today's marketplace on a traditional savings account. So this is appealing to some people who have never experienced bank failure. And so this could be the equivalent of a bank failure if you're earning, let's say, 8% on your crypto savings and the fintech kind of thing that is paying you that money vanishes or goes bust, that 8% means nothing because you lose all the money you have with them. So this is why we're in a pioneering phase. And why what I encourage you to do is be in the crypto world only experimental with any of the different facets that are going to happen. You know, a lot of people with crypto went gaga when El Salvador said that they were going to treat Bitcoin as an official currency. El Salvador operates with the U.S. dollar. It's what's called a dollarization economy. They operate with the U.S. dollar. Now, parallel to that, Bitcoin is required in the country to be a form of payment anywhere in the country. How that's going to all play out, we'll see. But uh, the initial launch of that didn't go so hot. But anyway, it allowed people who are evangelical about cryptos to feel like, see, we are the real thing now. We are the real thing. And again, digital money is going to be a real thing once it has stable value. Right now, the cryptocurrencies are looked at as speculative investments instead of a stable place to hold money or an equivalent of money. So we're very early in the game. So again, play money, not the real money. And what do I mean by play versus real? If you were to lose the money, do you lose sleep at night? If you were to lose the money, does it affect your lifestyle? If it is money that you can say, ah, well, that was fun, that didn't work out, then that's fine. Krista? Well, I guess you've already answered Joe's question, but he said, I've been investing in something you don't advise many listeners to partake in the cryptocurrency markets. But one thing that I believe you could get behind is the interest earning stable coins that some of the crypto exchanges are offering. I've been parking cash in one for a few months. As of recently, they offer 8.05% APY. What are your thoughts? And of course, what are your okay. concerns, if any? That's so funny. <laughs> you said 8%. Yeah, I, I, I just threw 8% out because I'd seen yeah. that in some of the uh, stories I've been reading. And so the answer, Joe, is ditto to what I said. And that is the risk that, because there is no FDIC insurance or NCUA insurance on this, if the exchange does go bust or if they turn out to not be on the up and up or whatever, the money you have put with them vanishes in the night. And from Jennifer in Georgia, can I use my 529 plan to pay for fraternity fees? So you may be able to, 
only for housing costs. So if you live in the frat house or the sorority house, you can, uh, gosh, that would be great as a guy to live in the sorority house. Anyway, if you, if you live in the fraternity or sorority house, then the normally what the college would charge for room and board, that would be an eligible expense. But other things involved with being a fraternity or sorority member, like dues and stuff like that, you can't use 529 plan money for those things. And from Brian in Tennessee, can you address the pros and cons of refinancing compared to just paying extra to bring down your effective interest rate? Currently, we add about $380 a month to our 30-year mortgage. The original loan was $186,000, and we refinanced in March 2020 down to 3.25%. We've already recovered our costs, and more than 50% of our payment goes toward principal with our additional amount. Is there is another refi worth the trouble to try to get down to 2%? Absolutely, it is. I don't know what your current balance is. It originally was 186. So as long as you're really above 125,000 remaining balance, it's pretty much a slam dunk for you to refi with the way you pay. I would refi into a 15-year mortgage. You have the potential of getting the rate down to 2%, as you said, a fraction less or a fraction more. And that would be absolutely worth it because the carry cost on the remaining loan balance would be so extremely favorable. You could, if you want to make sure it's going to work for you, take a higher rate eliminating closing costs, and then you know you're going to save money from the get-go coming from three and a quarter percent down to, let's say it costs you 2.5% for no closing cost. This is from Cameron in Hawaii. My wife contributes to her 403B at work, but she does so through an advisor that came to her classroom one day. I looked at her statement and saw he charges a 2% fee. Is there a way to change her advisor and do the investments herself, or can she roll her 403B over into her Roth IRA that she already has? Cameron, you're killing me here. Oh, man. This is why... 403B plans are such garbage. The, uh, the school systems allow in these salespeople either through the union being part of the 403B plan or the school district being the one that has allowed these snakes to come into the classroom, do their pitch, and then charge these massive fees the reality is what your wife's doing right now is destroying her long-term financial security because that 2% drag on her money means every dollar she puts in basically immediately becomes 98 cents. She's fighting from behind from every dollar she's trying to save. So the first thing to figure out is are there alternatives that are available in the 403B plan offered by the school district or if it is a union plan with the union. If there are alternatives, you want to see which ones you can direct invest with. If there is a fidelity plan, for example, fidelity is usually the straightest shot to getting ultra-low costs on a 403B plan, uh, potentially a Vanguard plan. But any that involve an insurance company with a salesperson involved, 
the fees are going to be astronomical, in which case your wife would want to discontinue contributing to the 403B plan unless there's a match and then just contribute up to the amount of the match and instead fully fund a Roth IRA each year and, in addition, set up a regular investment account. Mentioning Fidelity again, just have an investment account with them going into the Fidelity Zero index funds. With the money already contributed to the 403B, she's going to be subject to surrender charges that are gigantic for dumping out of the overpriced plan. So the most important thing is to discontinue contributing to this ripoff plan and give it time to wean away from the massive surrender charges and then would be the time to move the money potentially to an IRA. Gosh, the 403B plans disgust me. Um, Let's talk about what's coming up. And it's the money in your wallet. What do you have to carry a wallet for? How thick does that wallet have to be? I'm going to tell you the pros and cons as I see the wallet of the future straight ahead. I used to carry the world's thickest wallet. It was crazy ridiculous. And then years ago, I found out about a wallet from a company that was called All At. Now they use a number of different uh, brand names that came up with a much thinner wallet, but it still allowed me to carry huge numbers of pieces of plastic and this thing called Kosh. Kosh? Cash. 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 That's it. That's what it's called. I mean, nobody ever uses it anymore, so I can't even remember what they call it. Just teasing. And so. When I went into lockdown for the pandemic, I was like, why am I carrying that wallet anymore? And so I went online and bought uh, from, I forget if it was Walmart or Amazon, I bought this really thin little thing that held driver's license, three pieces of plastic, and you could put a little bit of cash in it. And it was this ultra tiny thin thing and I use it still about two-thirds of the time and then I have my thin wallet here so you see Krista right here it's pretty thin for a wallet but it's more traditional that I carry like the other third of the time and more and more I find what am I using as a replacement from my wallet I use my phone And so I've got my G-Pay, because I'm an Android guy, and I've got all these loyalty cards, payment cards, all that in my G-Pay. And so less and less and less am I ever using my wallet. And now the experiments that I told you about probably three or four years ago was states experimenting with having an electronic driver's license on your phone, that is now becoming a much more widespread thing. There was an announcement by Apple that they're using the technology that they and Google share that allows for things to be electronic and secure. And so Apple was very clear 
that the states that are cooperating with them on going to a digital driver's license, that they will not be able to track where you've been, what you've been doing, and all that. And uh, Google, again, has that same backbone platform, but it has not announced any states yet for them handling the driver's license. And I'll tell you, TSA is going to have it at participating airports that they're going to cooperate on. But it still doesn't mean if you're traveling somewhere, you wouldn't carry your physical wallet. We're still going to be in early innings on it. But the truth is that in your phone, you have the ability to replace more and more, because your phone's always with you, replace more and more having to carry stuff. I mean, we live in a condo, and I have this thing on my key fob that's the most annoying thing in the world. It's a little thing that that you put against doors that lets you in and all that. And it seems like 1990s technology, and I just read recently it is 1990s (laughs) technology and not very secure either. And so I hated carrying the thing. So I went on eBay and I bought a device that allowed me to duplicate that. Oh, my gosh. You're going to be in trouble with your condo. You see, you can't see this on the podcast, (laughs) but see this little blue sticker on the Uh back of my phone? I just attached it, and now all I have to do is wave my phone, Uh. and I get in the building. And it cost me $11 for the device on eBay to be able to duplicate that. Kind of scary, right? Yeah, but, but I couldn't create one that was one I wasn't authorized for. You can duplicate one you're supposed to have. In theory, if somebody stole my thing, they could duplicate it. But anyway, the point is that we are not yet at the end of the wallet, but we are at the beginning stages of being done with a wallet. Do you still carry a giant like thing with a million different cards in it? Like, What do you carry now? No, I have like a little purse that has a few slots that I keep things in. But I was thinking when I go like to the airport, um, my phone my phone is my car key and I have clear and pre-check. So I don't ever even need my license or anything. I have my boarding pass on my phone. I mean, I just use my phone for everything. If you're not familiar with clear, it's something that started long ago, went bust, came back to life. And it is a thing in cooperation with the TSA where you go to an express line to go through security and it scans your eyeballs or your handprint. Usually for me, it's the eyeballs. And you don't show your driver's license, none of that. And it scans that and then scans your boarding pass and you're done. You're through to the belt to put your bag on. And so it is a significant change in how we do things and I'd say that we are in a continuum moving away from having to carry a wallet big problem though what do you think the biggest problem is with using you losing your phone? your phone or getting stolen or your phone dying dying is the big thing because mm. you know if you have a phone that you're always nursing a charge on your phone dies when you're trying to use it somewhere like is representation of your driver's license then you got a problem. Or no data, too, if you don't have a good connection. All right, let's go to some questions. This is from Mike in California. 
Since I live in SoCal, it's cheaper for me to go to a dentist in Tijuana that takes my insurance on direct billing. I had work done that the insurance denied or underpaid for about $500, which still makes it a steal at the price I would have paid in the U.S. Do I need to pay the difference, and is this normal? So, Mike, uh, that's called balance billing, and there's a couple of possibilities. One is the dentist may not have properly coded the claim for insurance, so you want to appeal the decline for the denial, but you do have ultimate responsibility for the difference. And yes, it is completely normal with health and dental insurance that the insurers try to reduce what they'll pay or deny part or all of a claim. So it's up to us to advocate for ourselves. And a lot of people back east just aren't aware about how common it is for people in California to cross the border into Mexico to get various forms of medical and dental care. From Graham in Indiana, I'm researching life insurance options, and I came across a company that is a B Corp and has a 1% for the planet badge. I prefer to support a B Corp when possible, but the insurance is backed by a group with an A- designation, and I know your guide says to stick with A plus and A++. What would I be sacrificing between an A-plus and A-minus option? I'm willing to go out of my way a little bit to support more ethical companies, but I can't decide if this is too much risk. So buying life insurance, you're buying a, a product that the use of it may not be for decades. What I'd rather you do is buy from a company rated a plus and at least A-plus, and then you give... Uh, 1% of what you're paying in premiums to your favorite charity rather than put your insurance at risk by going with a lower rated insurer. I know there are people who would say I'm being overly cautious by saying that A- minus isn't good enough, but considering the time period that you're owning life insurance, I really want you to err on the side of safety and go A double plus. And in particular, if you find a company that's a mutual company, that by having a policy, you're an owner of the company, that's even better. From Charles in Indiana, we are planning a trip in our truck and travel trailer out west in July of 22. What is the best gas card to have in maximizing savings on gas? My preference is that you get the Sam's Club MasterCard. If you are a Sam's Club member, it gives you 5% cash back on gasoline most anywhere. I don't want you to have a gas card for a particular place because the problem with having a card for a particular chain is that you can end up by limiting your choices of which stations you go to, you're going to potentially pay more per gallon and it becomes a false savings with the 5%. With the Sam's Club MasterCard, you're putting yourself in a position that wherever the cheapest gas is, you're going to get the 5%. There are a small number of places they won't give you the 5% cash back, i.e. filling up at Costco for gasoline. They're not going to give it back. And some other places that they tell you with the terms and conditions for the card. The card is free for Sam's Club members. Costco has a card that gives not quite as much for gasoline, also has some limitations. But if you're a Costco member, get their card to buy gasoline. This if you want to see a full list of the gas rewards cards, the best ones out there, 
I've got that for you in a story on Clark.com. This question is from Melanie in South Carolina. My son had a Discover card in college and paid it off monthly. Now that he's graduated, he applied for what looked to be a good rewards visa and was turned down, although he has a good credit score. They cited no credit history with the bank. You often mention adding adult children as authorized users on a parent's card. Will this help him if I add him on my card? Does it hurt his credit score when I remove him from my card? Okay. In this case, I think we just have to say who the issuer is, Chase Bank. Chase has really, really uh, weirdo rules and restrictions in applying for their cards. And they've got certain circumstances for people that bounce from reward card to reward card where they'll turn you down and all the rest. So adding your son to, and it's great, he had the college student Discover card. It's the the easiest, best-run program I think I know of for a college student credit card. So adding your son as an authorized user on your Chase card would likely be healthy for Uh, his credit score and helpful for him applying for a Chase card. And I'd give it three months before he tries again for that Chase rewards card that turned him down because he had no credit history with Chase. So let me explain that very briefly. Chase sets a higher criteria for approval on their reward cards than they do with some of their other cards. And that's why they make it difficult and complicated to get their reward cards. And I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Clark Howard Show. I really appreciate it. If you haven't already, why don't you subscribe? 